Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Well, as I said, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And um, as John mentioned, uh, we're starting this teaching series called Future People, where we're looking uh, at Revelation. I know. Put your seatbelt on. It's going to get real. When I think about Revelation, there's two types of people um, with regards to Jesus followers and the book of Revelation. Maybe you've met one of them. Maybe you are one of them right now. The first is the person that's overly fixated on Revelation. Do you know the type? They've read Left Behind a thousand different times, and they think through their ingenuity and intelligence, they can put all the numbers together and all the little visions together in Revelation so that they can be the cosmic forecaster of when the end date will come. That, of course, continues to get adjusted after that end arrives and then goes. And then there are other people, you know, that read Revelation. Or maybe actually, to more of the point, they don't read Revelation because they've encountered this person so many times. They're trying to not be that person. And they think the best way to do that is just by ignoring it altogether. Well, let me just say, both of those things are unfortunately missteps with regard to this book that is the last book in the New Testament, Revelation. What is Revelation? Revelation is a, is a couple things. Well, it's lots of things, but a couple things that I want us to understand about it is the first is it's apocalyptic. Now, you might think of like some Mad Max scenario with burning buildings in some urban setting when you hear the word apocalyptic, but that is actually not what it means. The word apocalypse means to reveal, to pull the curtain back on reality, as it were. And this is what John is wanting to do. He's wanting to pull the curtain back on reality so that in the middle of the disorder and the chaos that he was in the middle of, they might, he might, and he might give those he's writing to a vision of what true reality is, that Jesus is still on the throne even though we look out there and we see things that would seemingly contest that. So apocalypse is revealing the future victory of Jesus in the present moment. That's what apocalypse means with regards to the book Revelation. It means that Jesus is king and all earthly powers are mere shadows in comparison to him. And Revelation is also a letter. So it isn't just the personal experience of John as he has an experience of Jesus, an apocalyptic experience, but it's also him telling seven churches about what he's experienced so they might be encouraged. So you take these, both of these things here and you see it is apocalyptic. It reports to, on heavenly realities, but it's a letter. So it is for earthly people in their everyday lives encouragement. Both of these things are important to understand, and they will help shape your understanding of Revelation. It documents heavenly realities for people on earth here and now that want to live in light of Jesus' future victory. We wrote a three-page document here at Anchor, because, um, and we'll probably be continuing to write new ones each week to help you understand this book. Um, and it is available at the info table. Uh, you know, I think, you know, supplies are limited, et cetera, et cetera. Make sure to go get it immediately afterwards so you can kind of better understand some of the things that we're not able to cover um, and help understand, frame your understanding of Revelation. Here's why we're going over this book in the next six weeks. The first is, is uh, we want to avoid the two errors of misunderstanding it or totally ignoring it. 
We want to be people that are looking at Scripture and appreciating Scripture and understanding Scripture, even if it seems at the start a little confusing. And second, we want to provide some clarity about Revelation because right now, you know, some people are making some whatever crazy predictions. We want us to really understand what is really being communicated here. What's like, what is actually, what does Jesus want us as followers of him to know with regards to this last book? First point we're looking at today is what I'm calling the burden of the future. The burden of the future. You know exactly what this means. You've been in situations where you're waiting for an email or a phone call, and sometimes the burden of the future can be good. You're waiting for that good news. When is the good news going to drop? Sometimes the burden of the future can be bad. You're waiting for that bad news. Some of us don't even, you know, we don't even know what the thing is we're waiting for, but we know something's going to happen, and we're just kind of feeling the burden of the future constantly all around us. Well, this is not something unique to our time. It's actually just part of being a human, and John experienced, the author of Revelation experienced the burden of the future. In verse 9 of chapter 1 in Revelation, we read this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. A couple things just to point out just about that verse. I love the juxtaposition of suffering in kingdom. This articulates our reality as we are followers of Jesus. We see kingdom inbreaking. We see healing. We see lives change. And we also experience suffering. This is a part of living in the world at this time that we see the kingdom and we see suffering. John is saying, this is normal. And the people he's writing to, he's saying like, hey, I'm a fellow sharer in this. We share in this kingdom suffering experience that is true for Jesus' followers up to this present moment. But then he also, then he says, I was in Patmos. Patmos. Where's Patmos? The island of Patmos. Sounds nice. Five star, all inclusive. <laughs> Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know. You're on vacation, a little mimosa at the start, a little, you know, it's vacation. No, that's not Patmos. Patmos was a place where the emperor put political prisoners that were seen to be threats to his power. You see, Jesus' followers in the first, second, and third century believed that there was one Lord named Jesus and they would only bow to him. And when you have an emperor saying, no, I'm the one Lord and you need to bow to me, that creates a little bit of a problem. So Jesus' followers were actually political um, threats to the reign of, of all the emperors uh, that came in those first three centuries because they believed that there is one king and his name was Jesus, not Nero or Domitian or anyone else. So in this kind of tyrannical, power-hungry way to try to um, take care of all the problems, the emperors sought to silence many of the Jesus' followers either through death or political exile. And this is what happened with John, sent to the island of Patmos, not for retreat or vacation, but for a sentence. So there, John was relationally isolated on the island of Patmos. Relationally isolated. You think about, um, if you know the book of Revelation, maybe you're familiar with this, um, Later on, John will describe heaven as having no sea. So sorry, you jet skiers and sailors. Make this summer count, you know. <laughs> More than obviously heaven not having a sea, what is John communicating? Well, many things, but many scholars have pointed out uh, that John had this in mind. 
when he looked at the sea, what was the sea symbolic of? It was symbolic of this, that it was the separation between him and everyone that he loved. It was the symbol of his relational isolation. And so when John is saying, in heaven there is no sea, he's saying that in heaven there will no longer be relational isolation. I will no longer be separated from everyone that I love just by myself, but I will be with those that I love. But right here, he is relationally isolated and he is politically exiled, the subject of oppressive, tyrannical governments imposing themselves on him and stealing and taking away his agency as a human being. Strained physically, he was not getting three square meals a day. So we might imagine meager rations in extreme conditions in a prison camp, chipping away rocks with barely enough food to provide the caloric intake to get through the day. This is John. Thomas Torrance, a a theologian, says about this situation, he was abandoned to the inhospitable solitude of a restless murmuring sea and left to rot and bleach upon the rocks. This was Patmos. And let me just expand this a little bit for us. Because I think if you've had a pulse, you've had a glimpse of what John is experiencing. If you have a pulse, you've experienced a Patmos moment. Maybe a lot of them. Last year, um, we took my son to uh, the doctor because he was having this wheezing. We did the albuterol thing. We did all this stuff, and it seems like it just wasn't going away, so we went to the doctor. It's what you do, free parental tip right there for you. Uh, And the doctor, on a whim, said, well, let's just check out an x-ray. They did the x-ray, and there was this mass from his neck down to his lower abdomen, and we all take a big collective breath. Um, Candace, my wife, um, had uh, experienced, she was there um, in the room and had experienced cancer herself previous to this uh, when she was a teenager, so you can imagine what she was feeling. But fortunately, within 48 hours, we were able to rule out that it wasn't cancer, but the next few months, we were trying to figure out how do we prevent this mass from growing back constantly and obstructing his breathing and and, and obstructing his blood flow. Up to this present day where my son's taking immunosuppressants in a kind of lingering pandemic so that this thing just doesn't grow back. I can tell you throughout the months and up to this present moment with regard to that particular situation, we've had lots of Patmos moments where the strain and the pain feels very real. Some of you, you guys can look back over the last two years and remember plenty of Patmos moments yourselves. You know, I love Facebook memories. You know, Facebook memories are like, you know, I'm like, oh, our kids are so cute. And I, I look younger, you know, wow. Um, <laughs> but I got to say, over the last, uh, you know, like, you know, I don't know, year or so, I've been hating Facebook memories. Every time I open Facebook memories, it gives me some type of low-grade post-traumatic stress from this pandemic, you know. <laughs> I'm like looking at a picture of myself afraid and alone with a mask. And I'm like, ah, get behind me. I don't want to remember that. Facebook, once again, you failed me, you know. We've had experiences of these Patmos experiences, these Patmos moments where kingdom and suffering are blended together. The challenges, um, well, let me just say the, the Patmos moments, they come in lots of different shapes and sizes. 
And they come to atheists and Christians, rich and poor. They weave their way into all of their lives. They show up in the present patmos of financial strain, relational strain, chronic pain. And where are we asking, how long will this go on? The burden of the future is, will this continue on for in, like, forever? When is this going to end? Some of us, as we looked at last week, we're like, is this going to, how long will this go on? Then there's the impending Patmos. Some of us are, are people that we can look into the future and things might be going really good and we're, but, but we're just, we just know the other shoe's going to drop and all the good stuff's going to be taken away is soon. I, we just can feel it. We can sense it. Then there's the big picture Patmos of climate change and political tension and war and the breakdown of institutions, the rise of crime and the fall of mental health. And then there's the personal Patmos. The thing that we've never, you've never shared with anyone else. That makes you feel a little isolated because you haven't given voice to it. And you're wondering, when will the time be for me to be courageous enough to pass on this thing that's been in my heart that I haven't shared? Who's the mentor? Who's the counselor? Who's the friend? We feel these patmoses in a variety of different ways. So the question is, here's the question. What do you do with your Patmos moment? What do you do with it? November 8th, this past year, there was a partial lunar eclipse. Um, I don't expect any of you to, to know about that. Uh, first of all, the first reason is because it was at 2.59 a.m. So, like, if, you know, if you're really, I don't know anybody that that's, that's that, that committed, you know. Come find me afterwards if you are. Um, Second of all, I don't expect you to know it because it was in November. And like November is like, it feels like a constant eclipse. It feels like, I, I, maybe you could tell me like we had a month-long eclipse. And I'd be like, yep, that's November. You know, in, no in the Pacific Northwest, that's November. You could tell me that whatever, that there's an eclipse, a solar, I don't even know, all sorts of eclipses. I'm like, it's, I wouldn't know. It's just clouds, so. But here's the thing with, with an eclipse. Uh, in a particular time, at a particular location, the moon prevents the light of the sun from being visible. Say that again. At a particular time, in a particular location, the moon prevents the sun from being visible. Think about the moon. The moon, compared to the sun, is like a piece of dust. Here's the moon. Life-size representation. No, not life-size. Here's the sun. It's massive. But... In a particular location, at a particular time, something this small can obstruct the vision of this much light. It's actually documented that in throughout history, before you know, we had basic astronomy, people thought the world literally was ending in the midst of eclipses. Because like, no, it's happening. You know, it can be scary. When we're in a Patmos moment. It's easy to think that all there is is absence of light. But really, it's just you in a particular time, in a particular location, not able to see the very real light that is still very real and very much there. The question is, what do you do? What do you do? Here's the thing. If you make the mistake for thinking in that Patmos moment, when it seems like the darkness is not there, if you make the mistake saying, saying that this is all there is, thinking that the, the darkness is reality, forgetting that there is so much, something so much bigger just beyond the moon, if, if you make that mistake, the burden of the future will break you down. But 
if you understand that the Patmos moments are momentary obstructions of light based on your particular vantage point, all the darkness is like a speck of dust compared to the brilliance of God's light and the length of eternity. This is what John comes to realize in the middle of his Patmos moment. In verse 10, we read, On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So this is not an interior mental vision. This is something that's actually happening outside of John. He has to physically turn around and orient his body to see the voice, or to see what he hears, uh, which said, Write on the scroll that you, what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see, in the middle of John's Patmos moment, where the burden of the future probably felt strong, he encountered the brilliance of Jesus. Who was John? A little background on the author. John um, uh, was uh, seen to be the, the young, one of the, the youngest disciples. We know this because Leonardo da Vinci has documented it very well. You know, We don't know 100% sure if he was the youngest, but we think he was. And in the Last Supper with Jesus having said, I'm going to, to die and then rise again. And of course, they didn't understand the rise again part. They just heard the die part. Where did John place himself in proximity to Jesus? He put his head on Jesus's chest, hearing the very heartbeats of the Messiah. I want to be just so close to you, Jesus. I want to be there physically next to you. I want to be like hearing your breathing because if you're dying, I'm not going to let this memory leave me. Jesus and John had this transparent, this intimate, vulnerable friendship. And John would describe also <clears throat> that, that he was the disciple that, uh, that Jesus loved. <laughs> he wrote the Gospel of John, you know, and he's like, and then the disciple that Jesus loved, which is him, you know. Some people think there's a reason why he wrote his gospel last, because he, he wanted to kind of have the last word. You know, yeah, they've written theirs, but I was the disciple that Jesus loved. But here now, John sees Jesus differently. This is not the Jesus that I'm reclining next to. This Jesus is presented as powerful, beyond imagination. Verse 12 says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I saw, I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. We'll find out later. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Check this out. Where is Jesus? He's right in the middle of his church. Where is Jesus? He's right in the middle of the church. He's amidst the church. And among the seven lampstands was someone like the Son of Man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Clothing, an appearance, communicates something. If I see a woman with a white coat on and a stethoscope, I know that there is, she is a doctor. Or uh, it's Halloween, maybe it's an outfit, I don't know. 
But I know com- clothing communicates something. Blue slacks, you know, a badge and, and, a, and a hat that goes like this that I don't know how to describe that communicates that this person is a, probably a police officer. And so what John is, is experiencing, he's experiencing the presentation of Jesus. And the presentation of Jesus is incredibly important for us to understand. I want to go through each of these descriptors because it's important for us to understand. It would have been immediately understandable for John, but for us it isn't. So this robe, it was the robe that a priest would wear. So Jesus is revealing himself to be a priest. The Latin word for priest is pontifex. That's an engineering word. It means bridge builder. Here is Jesus, this bridge building priest. He bridges, uh, he builds a bridge between the divine and the eternal and the human and the fragile. He is the bridge builder. Here I am, John. I'm the one that bridges that chasm. But also it was the robe that a king would wear. So a king has the authority to make decrees and has power. Here is the priest, King Jesus, revealing himself to John on the island of Patmos. And he had a golden sash around his shoulder. Now this is similar to a construction worker's tool belt. And if the tool belt's around your waist, then it symbolizes that you are presently working. The job is not yet done. But if you have the tool belt around your shoulder, it means the job has finished. And so Jesus here is communicating, I am the bridge building, chasm fixing king that has here finished, I've finished the work. John, in the middle of Patmos, is experiencing this. And his hair is as white as wool, meaning that it is ageless. He is wise and he is pure, unblemished. He is fire in his eyes, which means that he is not only pure, but he purifies. And he sees through lies and sees through darkness. Fire in his eyes gives him the ability to penetrate that which seems confusing or where mostly vision is obstructed. He stares right through it. He sees right through deception. He sees right through the illusory. Feet like burnished bronze, meaning that he can walk wherever he wants, victorious. Voice like a waterfall. Here's what I love about this. My family and I recently uh, went on vacation and we saw a waterfall. And my wife kept trying to get my attention. Brian, Brian, Brian. And I was like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. The waterfall. Waterfalls have this unique ability to drown out every other voice. I imagine John had some voices in his head. Is this going to end I hate this. Did I make a mistake? And here Jesus is revealing himself, the priest, king, that's finished his work with fire in his eyes, and he can, John can only hear Jesus' voice. All the other voices are drowned out. And he has the seven stars in his hand. We'll come to find that these are angels, but also in the first century, second century world, before there was, um, you know, modern day astronomy, people would consult the stars uh, to think, to try to figure out what the future was. I guess people still do that. And so there was only seven planets that were visible. So sometimes they're referred to as the seven stars. Here, Jesus had the seven stars in his hand, symbolizing that he has the future in his hands. He has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. 
The Greek word, is, it's, it's not a long sword. It's not a fencing sword. It's a close sword, meaning that Jesus will get close and he will speak words that cut through lies. He had a face like the sun. You see, we use this word breathtaking sometimes. Grand Canyon was breathtaking. Oh, Narrows Bridge, look, it's so breathtaking. I love the view from your house. It's breathtaking. It doesn't really take your breath. You're still breathing. Don't lie to us. But here, what John experienced of the brilliance of Jesus was truly breathtaking. When I saw him, it says in verse 17, I fell as, at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys. He holds the keys. What is vital for us to understand is that the presentation of Jesus in verses 12 to 18 reveals the full nature of who Jesus is. Let me explain this. You see, certain ages of history and certain personality types gravitate to certain presentations of who Jesus is. In fact, if you just Google paintings of Jesus, you'll find different presentations of Jesus throughout different spaces, geographical spaces and different historical moments. The challenge is, is oftentimes these visions of Jesus reveal something true about him, but they also reveal our bias. They present a vision of Jesus that we kind of prefer. But in verses 12 and 18, we see a vision of Jesus that is incredibly powerful, unrivaled, strong, mighty, and downright fierce. And we also have a vision of Jesus that is compassionate, kind, intimate, and loving. He goes right up to John and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You see, the challenge for us as Jesus followers is to hold both of these realities together. You see, if I was to diagnose our current moment of Christian spirituality in this nation, I'd say we have a very good view of the compassion, kindness, and intimacy of Jesus, and we need to. The Jesus that says, don't be afraid, we know that Jesus well. But I honestly worry that we have such a focus on the particular angle of Jesus that we miss the fire in his eyes, majesty of Jesus. And there's a risk of domesticating Jesus. And when this happens, we turn his nurturing qualities into coddling qualities. And we turn our rights into, as sons and daughters into our entitlements. I realized this within myself recently, if I'm, if I'm to be transparent. I was reading a book written um, by Chinese pastors, and it was called uh, Exhortations from the Chinese Church to the Western Church. And I found myself reading um, the first essay, just thinking like, dude, these guys need to chill out. Like they're talking about suffering and pain and persecution and, and enduring, um, you know, suffering for the name of Jesus and rejoicing in that suffering. I'm like, Man, you guys, just like take a deep breath, you know, have a coffee, relax. Don't have a coffee, actually. <laughs> have some herbal tea. And then as I began processing that, I realized that maybe I had become too comfortable with the do not be afraid, Jesus, and too foreign to the fire in your eyes, sword from the mouth, 
priest king, Jesus. You cannot move through a Patmos moment to the other side with a biased vision of Jesus. You see, if you just believe that Jesus is kind and intimate, that's nice, but it doesn't allow you the power to actually move through Patmos. And if you just have a powerful vision of Jesus and don't have a merciful, tender, nurturing, and those words are appropriate and important, if you don't have that vision of Jesus, then it's just like, wow, he's powerful, and here I am, like overwhelmed and melting in the face of how powerful he is. We need the, do not be afraid, I am powerful, Jesus, to be fully present. We need to see that Jesus is both mighty and powerful and tender and intimate, If he's just powerful, then we melt in light of his glory. If he's just tender and intimate, we're not able to be saved. The burden, here's the thing, the burden of the future is broken by an encounter with the real brilliance of Jesus. This is what John experienced, and this was John's personal experience. John experienced this. The seven churches he was writing to didn't experience it. But he was writing to them, wanting to convey that to them because he knew that if they just got a glimpse of who he had experienced, then they would walk with confidence in their life. Then they would walk with courage in the the midst of their oppression, in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their Patmos moments. They would walk with their chest out knowing that Jesus holds the keys. question is, how do we access that? How do we become truly future people? I love that. Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. In fact, I, I got a little tattoo, this key. I look at it sometimes because it's, it's from that verse. Uh, and sometimes I need to look at it because I'm finding myself thinking that the future is just a burden and I can't find my way forward or my brokenness feels too big. Jesus has the keys. He has the keys to death in Hades. Think about what's the worst that could happen to you. A counselor or a friend might ask that question and you might say, well, I guess maybe, you know, um, this or this or this. Ultimately, it ends up, if you follow that thread, death, which is frightening. But Jesus here is meeting John, in the midst of that experience and doubt and wrestle that he was personally experiencing, and he says, I have the keys even to that. I have the keys to that. And make no mistake, it's hard and difficult, and and, and it comes for all of us, but eternity is longer than you can even imagine, and I will be with you, and there will be no more sea. This is the thing that John is encountering You see, the whole point of the book of Revelation is to usher the seven churches and every Jesus follower since into this faith-filled conviction that Jesus is presently reigning. And this is not wishful thinking theology. It's not naive spirituality. It's not blind optimism. It's not like whistling in the dark. This theology where Jesus reigns even in the middle of our Patmos moments was forged in his own personal Patmos moment. It was not forged on comfort and pillows and like, you know, great days and great meals and warm sun. It had the warm sun, but it didn't have the other stuff. It was forged in the middle of his political exile where he found this unbreakable vision. And here's this cool thing. In verse 19, it says, after he's experienced this, who Jesus is, Jesus says to him, so write, write, therefore. 
this articulates this principle throughout Scripture is that whenever we experience God, whenever we have an experience or a deeper understanding of God, it's not just for like this great endorphin feeling as if, you know, like it was supposed to be some type of spiritual Jesus-y rave or something like that. Anytime there is an experience of God, there is a call to action. For Moses, it was, now that you've experienced this, speak to Pharaoh and I will free my people. For Abraham, it was, leave what you know and I will be with you. For the church, it was, go into all the nations and do the work of the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And for John, it was, write this down. Write it all down because people need to hear this. There's seven churches out there that are suffering in persecution and they need to hear what I'm going to tell them. And for us, there's churches throughout history that'll need to hear that Jesus still reigns even when things don't look like it. Write this down, John. So what I'm just wondering, as you think about the brilliance of Jesus, what is he saying to you? Is he saying, live, therefore. Don't live in this self-retracted state where you're letting what ever challenge you've experienced set the terms for your future life don't live in this relationally kind of like solitary space because something happened in a relationship in the past so you're not willing to step into any type of intimate real relationship in the future maybe jesus is saying go hang out with people therefore or live therefore or maybe he's saying be generous therefore don't live with a scarcity mindset anymore. Maybe he's saying, share the good news with your neighbor, therefore. Get a vision from me. See how brilliant I am. Know that I have the keys to death and Hades. Have the courage to tell your neighbor that they are loved by a God that they may not even believe in. Have the courage to love your neighbor by, by dropping something on their doorstep or sending a kind text or loving your coworker by taking them out to lunch. Go do that, therefore. Love your neighbor, therefore. Don't live in fear of therefore. Get emotionally healthy, therefore. Sometimes Jesus might say that to us. As we encounter him, he might say, go to a counselor, therefore. There is always a call to action when there is an experience of Jesus. I invite the band up at this point, and I think I just want to leave us with that question. What is Jesus saying to you? In light of who he is, what is Jesus saying to you? We also have communion and prayer available. And I know that this week we've been feeling a variety of things. And so I, I would never want any of us to be afraid of stepping towards space for prayer. Because pr these prayer stations each week are opportunities for you to give voice to what you need from God. You might be hearing God say to you right now, go get prayer, therefore.